bulletin. We'll try to do more next week. We're sorry about that. Um, I'd ask you this morning to um, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're studying the book of Galatians, and we spent a number of weeks going through the essential arguments of the book of Galatians, but now we're spending a couple of weeks looking at the way that the argument is made. And this week we're on verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. This is our 12th in a series of sermons on this book. And I'd ask you to turn, open your Bibles up to the book of Galatians, the second chapter, beginning with verse 11. Galatians 2, verse 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But when Cephas, another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, says the Apostle Paul, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Now here we have what some might consider to be an infamous text of Scripture. We don't normally think of the word infamous being used about any part of the Bible. But uh, we know that some people do look at this as being scandalous. Um, when people would refer to it as infamous, they're not paying it a compliment because it's a negative thing to say. Now, why would anyone think of this text as infamous? Well, we would think that way because it's hard for us to even imagine these two principal leaders of the church, these two chief or head apostles, on the one hand, Peter, and on the other hand, Paul, it's hard to imagine these two men coming to such a conflict between themselves that one of them describes it saying that he resisted or that he opposed the other to his face. And yet that's what Paul claims happened between himself and Peter. That he took on Peter face to face and that he stood him down. So this is why it would be called infamous. Now today, churchmen, pastors and elders, Bible professors will do almost anything to avoid conflict, particularly a conflict that's gloves off in public. If we're going to have a conflict today, we'll make certain that it happens in the elders board. Uh, when everybody's left the barn, all the youth groups are gone home for the evening, the door's shut, and there we may, if we have to, fight for a short time. But whatever happens when the congregational meeting comes, make sure that you present a united front. But that's not what happened in the church in Antioch. In the church in Antioch, the conflict wasn't kept in a private room. It's very clear that the conflict was public. And if you had any question what the meaning of the text was, you would know the meaning by the fact that the Apostle Paul, writing the book to the Galatians, has made it even more public because you just read about it. And so all down through history, you see here in the book, 
an account of this public knockdown drag out between the two chief apostles, Peter and Paul. This is why we might call it infamous. And so we have trouble understanding this. Why would God, through his Holy Spirit, inspire Paul not just to do it in the first place, which is bodacious, but then having done it, to bring it up again and to bring it up in a public form that the Holy Spirit knew when he wrote it down would be recorded all through history. And of course, need I say, not just to write it down, but to record the fact that he, after all, was right. You remember the scene where he warns them that if they want to live you know, on the boat and then they're all shipwrecked and afterwards, remember what the Apostle Paul says? Remember, he says, I told you so. And so whatever residual resentment there was in the Apostle Peter when Paul faced him down and won, whatever residual resentment there was because Peter was a very proud man must have been set aside by Peter the Greatheart. In other words, he must have loved the church more than he loved his own pride. To allow the Apostle Paul to write this up and then later in his book to say commending things, positive things, approving things about Paul and about his writing. The Apostle Paul takes Peter to task, certainly privately before publicly, then publicly, then wins, then records it for posterity's sake. We're still studying it today. All through history, Peter's errors are shown in, in, in glaring light. And you know, this is one of the, I think, one of the most certain arguments in favor of the inspiration of Scripture, that it's not like any book you've ever seen written by a woman or a man. Because the Bible shows all of the terrible mistakes and errors and sins and wickedness of its greatest heroes. You know, you go back and you think, we start with Adam, but then we say, well, it was Moses writing that. And so then you read Moses telling you that God would not let him enter the promised land. And you wonder why. And there you find out that it's because Moses struck the rock. And I don't think any of us, having read the account of Moses being denied going into the promised land, having God take his life before he can go in there, I think of all he's put up with with the Israelites, and we read it's because he struck the rock and did not follow God's command explicitly. All right? I don't think there's any of us that don't find inside of ourselves uh, a sort of knee-jerk sense of uh, God violating fairness, uh, an injustice. If Moses was the meekest man who ever lived, how on earth do you end up justifying this one act of unmeekness, all right, causing him not to be able to finish the job he started and carried so faithfully for so many years? But there Moses is recording that he did sin, that God punished his sin by not letting him go into the promised land. And then if you're inclined to think that Moses is the only one who, who had these uh, terrible failures in his life, um, think of Moses' record, not just of himself, but think of what he says about the father in the faith, Abraham. Abraham, who kept passing off his wife as his sister, even to the point that she would be the object of someone else's sexual desires because he feared for his own life. Uh, and then what about Isaac? And what about Jacob, that, that scoundrel Jacob? 
Jacob, who uh, at the heart of his inheriting the, uh, the birthright that his brother Esau lost, was deception and a deception that his mother led him into and he carried out very well. Even when his father suspected that he was lying. All right? And then you go forward in Scripture and you go to David and you look at David committing murder uh, to cover up his adultery and the child that was in the womb of his paramour because of that idolatry. You look at uh, the New Testament and in the New Testament you see that the apostles are constantly fighting amongst themselves as to who will be the greatest. And that it says even in the upper room at the Last Supper, as Jesus is about to go on the cross, there arose a striving among them as to who would be the greatest. You see Peter in all his glory. Uh, Lord, you know, let me come to you. He gets on the water. What happens? He falls under. He takes his eyes off Jesus. And then you see him in front of a very intimidating little girl in the courtyard, swearing, cursing that he doesn't know the man, Jesus, all right, as Jesus is on trial and is about to be crucified. Aren't you with that man? Haven't I seen you? Blankety blank, I told you I have nothing to do with that man. And then afterwards, when Jesus meets them on the shore and there's this time of uh, Peter trembling, comes back to his master who's risen from the dead, uh, even there, Peter is, you, you sense some conflict over uh, John's future and his future. And that, again, the comparisons are odious. And here he is comparing himself to another disciple. And Jesus rebukes him and says, what is that to you? But Jesus gives him the command, feed my sheep. And so Jesus restores him to a position of honor. Okay, so here's Peter. This is Peter. Um, Seems like he's making mistakes regularly. Even when he has good ideas, they're not taken by the Lord. Let's, let's set up a tent here and dwell here a, lo- a while. Remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so here he is now. Jesus is glorified in his Father's presence. The church has been founded. Peter has been used in a great way on the day of Pentecost. He's been a stalwart, a pillar of the church. Um, and then what happens? Peter goes up to the church in Antioch. And uh, he's there hanging out, visiting, as many people did in the ancient world. And what does he do? Well, Peter is scared to death by those of the circumcision. And, and so Paul has to take him on. And somehow the Holy Spirit sees fit for all of us to read these accounts of the great heroes of our faith falling, 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 falling. And the Holy Spirit desires us to read those things, to know those things. So here we have a public conflict and a conflict where there's a clear victor, Paul, a clear principle at stake, the principle of salvation, uh, not by works, not by going back into the law of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but salvation uh, through faith by grace alone. And it's the theme of the book of Galatians, but the theme has a context, and this is the context. These men, who one of them is valiant for truth and the other is cowardly for 
for heresy, for denial of the gospel. Now, it says in verse 14, when Cephas, and again, this is another name for Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's a very heavy statement. In verse 14, it shows us that he, Paul, said to Cephas in the presence of all. And so it's to his face and it's in the presence of all. Now, what is the setting for this conflict? Well, the setting is the ancient city of Antioch. What was Antioch like? Well, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, at this time, it had about 500,000 inhabitants, half a million. So, whatever city has 500,000. Is that Indy? Okay, so it's... Huh? Okay, Charlotte, you said? But I think Charlotte and India are about the same size. Well, anyhow, let's say Charlotte. Um, now, of that city of 500,000, about 65,000, or about one-seventh of it, was Jewish. A very heavy Jewish population. A lot of Jews had gone up to Antioch and lived there. It was sophisticated in every way, but probably the centerpiece of its sophistication, the reason people would go and live that there, uh, Cleopatra and Mark Antony married there, the reason is because why? Well, because it had an architectural wonder of the ancient world. It had two miles, two solid miles, where you could walk down Main Street and be under, uh, be under colonnades. You could be under pillars holding up roofs. And so if you think, in the ancient world, there was a city where for 20 blocks, you could walk under covered like a mall, all right? Never be exposed to the weather. And these colonnades were composed of about 3,200 columns. And they came out from public buildings and from rich people's homes. And of course, under all these colonnades, the whole way up the path, were uh, booths and, and uh, various little stores and, and hand carts, whatever they had at the time, merchants. So if you want, it was sort of like uh, going into a mall today. The only thing is the storefronts were rich people's homes and public buildings and everybody was out under the roof in the common area. This whole area, two miles, it was all paved in marble. It was 31 feet wide, which is about um, half the distance from the pitcher's plate to home plate. Or it's one foot deeper than the end zone. And it was lined by these covered walkways with majestic columns supporting the roots. And this was the only place in the ancient world where you had such a majestic public space as this. Now, since Antioch had such a large number of Jews, it was important that its residents were able to distinguish between just normal Jews and those who followed the Jew, Jesus. Remember this, whenever you read debates about um, uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, or whatever it's called, the issue isn't whether it's anti-Semitic by the way, the issue is whether it's a violation of the second commandment to make a movie with Jesus in it. That's the issue. We should all be debating that because that's the real issue. Don't let the world set the agenda of Christians who know the scriptures. Uh, 
and, and have debates over that. It's an interesting thing to debate. But the issue in that movie is not whether it's anti-Semitic. How do you make a story about Jesus the Jew who is crucified by his own people, his own ethnic group, and, and how do you have that be anti-Semitic? I mean, Jesus is the hero of the story and he's a Jew. All right? That's the main point. How he dies is secondary. He didn't come to expose his fellow countrymen. He came to bear on himself the sins of the world. All right? So here we have a large number of Jews and a large number of people who follow Jesus, the Jew, in Antioch. And so the question is, how do you distinguish between them? What do you name them? Now, before that, they'd been called the way. But we read in Acts 11, 26, the second half of the verse, we read the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so the way in this cosmopolitan city with so many people groups, the way with such a large number of, of, of people living there who were Jews, the way that they distinguished between the just run-of-the-mill Jews and the Jews and Gentiles who followed the Jew Jesus, you can see how it would be confusing to them. They had to keep track of all these religions. The way they distinguished between these two groups was by calling those who followed the Jew Jesus Christians. Jesus Christ. They were Christians. They were people who followed Christ. Now, we're fond of speaking of 1792 as being the year of the birth of what? Tim Wagner? Anybody else know? Anybody? Huh? No, think, think, uh, think the church. It's the birth of the modern missions movement because in that year... Elder Tim Wagner's hero, William Carey, released a book, a little booklet with this title. And here's the title of his booklet, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. That's how they used to name their books. Now, remember here it says the success of former undertakings. So if that was the birth of the modern missions movement, what was the birth of the original missions movement? Well, you could argue that it was the day of Pentecost and you'd be right. But after the day of Pentecost, Antioch was the home of the ancient missions movement. In fact, Antioch was the home base or the sending church of the Apostle Paul on his missions journeys. Antioch was a key, key church. Uh, when the gospel first came to Antioch, there was a very large harvest, both in the Jewish population, but also in the Gentile population. And soon after this church was begun in Antioch, um, Barnabas, you remember the son of encouragement, corralled the apostle Paul into coming up with him to Antioch, there to work to strengthen the believers in this city. Antioch became then the Apostle Paul's home base, his sending church throughout his ministry. And in the years and centuries following the writing of the New Testament, Antioch continued to be one of the principal churches of uh, the Christian church. And it continued to have uh, a great influence in the ancient world until in the 6th century, around 525 
A.D. when it was hit by a fire, a bad fire, and then in 526, a year later, and then two years later in 528, it was hit by two devastating earthquakes which killed about 360,000 people. And that was really mostly the end of the influence of Antioch in the ancient world. A century later, after these earthquakes, uh, Arabs conquered the city for Islam. And today, uh, Antioch is uh, a ramshackle little town of about 35,000 people of no merit whatsoever. And I should have written down what it's called today, but it was eminently forgettable. Um, and I didn't write it down, I'm sorry. But it's not Antioch and Karim or something like that. Now, back in the time of the early church, when the Apostle Paul was traveling the Roman Empire preaching the gospel, the battle for the soul of the church of Antioch, recorded here and also, you remember, recorded in Acts chapter 15, this battle was no small matter, nothing less as I said earlier, than the true doctrine of salvation, that man may be saved only through the completed, the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing less than this was at stake. So this was a cosmopolitan city with large groups of Jews and Gentiles filling her church. So there was no better place to watch the resolution between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament, Israel. Or if you will, Old Israel and New Israel. How would the Gentiles relate to the Jews? And the Jews relate to the Gentiles now that Christ had broken down the dividing wall and now that in Christ there was neither Jew nor Greek. How would it come about? Well, one thing clear from both the historical records written by Luke the physician in the book he wrote and in the chapters 14 and 15 of Acts and written by the Apostle Paul here in Galatians, is that it wasn't done peacefully. But it required a fight. A fight between Heman or between giants in the church. And with this account of this conflict, the Apostle Paul brings the historical section of the book of Galatians to an end. When we get done with this section, we'll go into pure doctrine. We won't deal with the history of Paul and his controversy that it was so close to his heart. The autobiographical historical section began with verse 13 of chapter 1, and it will come to an end in this section. Now, this historical section that we've been studying the last few weeks can be outlined by pointing to four occurrences that Paul has highlighted in that section. The first three all began with a particular word. They all began with the word then. Very definite setting in time, particular time, then this happened. The fourth occurrence that he accounts, that he writes about here, does not begin with then, but it begins with when. So we don't have the ability of, of nailing it down chronologically as much as the first three. Now, I would like to use a summary of Paul's uh, case, his history, that's written by the Bible scholar, the Baptist Timothy George, and he describes this whole section or paraphrases it as follows. He says, after God, so this is a summary of what Paul is saying in this whole autobiographical 
mystical section. After God called me to be an apostle, writes Paul, I did not even go to Jerusalem for several years. And when I finally did get there, it was only for a brief get acquainted visit with Peter. Although I also bumped into James, who was present as well. After this, my preaching ministry took me far to the north to Syria and Cilicia. During this time, the Christians in Judea only received hearsay reports about my work, although they praised the Lord for what he was doing through me. It was well over a dozen years later when I went to Jerusalem again, this time to talk with the leaders there about how we could collaborate most effectively in the work of world evangelization. James, Peter, and John stood shoulder to shoulder with me against some false brothers who intruded into our meeting and tried to force my young friend Titus, a Gentile convert, to be circumcised. Of course, I didn't budge an inch on this crucial issue. And when the dust had cleared, the pillar apostles and I sealed our agreement with a cordial embrace. Given this outcome... You can imagine how disappointed I was when Peter came to Antioch and engaged in a kind of behavior that I knew belied his own convictions. Not even Peter, great as he is, could resist the pressure to back away from this earlier commitment to Christian liberty. And so I had to oppose him publicly because in this case, no less than during my second visit to Jerusalem, the truth of the gospel was at stake. I think it's a very helpful summary of this whole section of autobiographical history that we have been studying. Now, as I said, we can't be sure of the exact timetable of everything we know that happened in Antioch, but it's the guess of many that the conflict that we just read about this morning here in verses 11 to 14 of Galatians 2, that it fits into the rest of what we know as follows. A church was first planted in Antioch as a result of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And God often works this way. (laughs) I have to remind myself, uh, as we here who live permanently in Bloomington constantly say goodbye to those of you who are here for a time, uh, that God works through blowing churches up, having persecution come, which forces people to leave a particular place, or in our context, having uh, the university grant degrees. And once that's done, the gravy train is over and you have to go and pay the piper that you borrowed from for the last 8, 10, 12, 15, 20, 25 years. You have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 thousand dollars of debt. And you must be mad. But that's an aside. We'll deal with that some other time. (laughs) I hope you get a good job. So back in Jerusalem, persecution hit. What happened was that there was a great going out from the church in Jerusalem. And as they went out, the church grew. And so this is one of the ways that this old saying is proven. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So first, persecution hits Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is sent out as a result of the persecution. And right at the beginning of the book of Acts, the martyrdom of Stephen gives birth indirectly to the birth of the church in Antioch. A church is planted there in Antioch. Later, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, becomes a shepherd of that church and then brings in the apostle Paul to help with his work. The church was solid enough, both spiritually and financially, that it sent a gift of money back to the home church in Jerusalem to help them out. 
And both Paul and Barnabas were sent out from and by the church in Antioch on their first missionary journey, during which the churches in the province of Galatia, the churches being written to in this epistle we're studying, during which those churches were planted by Paul and Barnabas. That Paul and Barnabas later returned to Antioch, their home base, reported on what God had done through them, and then stayed there, quote, a long time, unquote. And that it was during that time that the issue of table fellowship reared its ugly head and began to divide the church there, resulting in the conflict between these two apostles, Peter and Paul. And that finally, the conflict continued to fester until the church there at Antioch appealed to the home church in Jerusalem for a decision on the matter of the proper relationship between the Jewish and the Gentile believers, specifically concerning the matter of obedience to the Old Covenant law and particularly the bondage or freedom of Gentile believers from the requirement of circumcision that was at the heart of the Old Covenant. Okay? Persecution in Jerusalem, church at Antioch is planted. Barnabas goes up to Shepherd, gets Paul to come up. Uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas are sent out from there as their home church. They go and plant churches, including the churches that this book of Galatians is written to. They then come back and hang out for a long time. During that time, a growing controversy between these two groups within the church, the Jews and the Gentiles, all right, out of that conflict, a growing tension, and finally, the tension over whether or not they have to be circumcised, these who have become Christians out of the Gentile world. Uh, then the appeal to the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem sends back an answer. And very interestingly, the people that are sent down to Jerusalem to bring that answer back are who? Paul and Barnabas. Now, that's interesting. Why? Well, look at verse 13 of our text. And there you'll see why it's interesting. You'll see that Paul, in describing this conflict over table fellowship, says this. He says, verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him. And who is him? They joined Cephas, or Peter, in, in hypocrisy with the result that, and look at that word, that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So if our chronology is right, what happened was that uh, Barnabas and Paul were together, son of encouragement. Uh, he introduced Paul to the Christians at the very beginning when they were scared to death of Paul because of his former persecution of the church. He called Paul up to help him in, here in Antioch at the church. They worked together. They went out and did a missions trip together. They came back and worked together, but there was a growing rift between them. And the rift was over the issue of how they were going to handle the Jew and Gentile meshing together, whether or not uh, table fellowship was, was a good between Jews and Gentiles, and then ultimately the issue of circumcision. It's very interesting then that Paul and Barnabas, when Paul himself says here that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy, it's very interesting. Those are the two that are later sent down to Jerusalem to get... Uh, a decision by the church. Remember I said earlier that it is beautiful to see Peter commending Paul later in his book in the New Testament to see that he came back. Well, it's also beautiful to see that after two separate divisions, both of which were quite intense, all right, 
between who? Between Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember the other division between Paul and Barnabas? Remember in the book of Acts, we're told that Paul and Barnabas were going to go off together and do their work together, which was their habit, until they had a disagreement over a young man named John Mark. And the issue was John Mark had deserted the work. Now, all of us might have a tendency to look down our noses at him um, because we don't live in a time of intense persecution. But imagine the intensity of the persecution and then think of John Mark. Maybe he didn't want to have the life Paul did, namely uh, almost being killed in one city and barely dragging himself out of the city alive, showing up to the next city and immediately going into the most public place possible and beginning to preach again. Maybe John Mark didn't want to do that. In other words, be sympathetic for this young man. But the Apostle Paul was not going to tolerate having a man in yoke with him who was not trusting the Lord, who did not live by faith. And so the Apostle Paul says to Barnabas, who essentially is John Mark's advocate, just as he used to be Paul's advocate, he says to Barnabas, he ain't going to come. And Barnabas says, he is going to come. And Paul says, uh-uh. And Barnabas says, uh-huh. And they divide. And Barnabas and John Mark are together, and Paul's the odd man out. All right? And again, this was so public, the church knew about it, it's recorded in Scripture down to today. And now we have another account. We have another account where Paul himself, talking about publicly opposing Peter, says that even Barnabas gave himself over to this hypocrisy. Now, it's one thing for somebody to account that there was a division between you and and that person over an objective issue over whether or not a man like John Mark ought to be restored after he deserted. And to this day, there are a lot of Bible uh, scholars who will argue the side of Barnabas, and there are a lot who will argue the side of the Apostle Paul. But how do you argue the side of Barnabas when it comes to the issue of his hypocrisy in when no one's watching, being willing to eat with a goyim? <laughs> okay? But, but when those of the circumcision come along, acting as if he never liked the goyim anyhow, and, and then eating only with those of the circumcision. Now, you know that the whole issue of circumcision is cleanliness, all right? That's what the Old Testament ceremonial things are all about, right? And so the Jews, my father tells me that when he was growing up in New York City, that uh, in Orthodox communities, Jewish Orthodox communities, they had an expression. The expression was Sabbath goyim. And it wasn't a positive expression. The Sabbath goyim was the dirty Gentile who you hired to come in and do all the things you were forbidden to do in your home because of your strict observance of the Sabbath. So if you were the houseboy of an Orthodox household and you went in and you let the fire in the stove or you turned on the lights or maybe at a pinch you did some laundry, whatever you did, you, they referred to you as the Sabbath goyim. <laughs> and it's not a compliment. So here we have ancient racism. It would be like saying nigger. It would be like saying uh, what uh, um, April Easter refers to me as a howley what Hawaiians refer to white people like me as. 
or uh, blacks honkies, despising one another. Don't ever think America invented racism. It's as old as the hills. <laughs> it just changes people groups, that's all. And then when it gets tired of people groups, it gets down to the oldest of them all, namely sexism, where women think men are fools and men think women are weak. You know how weak a woman is giving birth to children. That's a joke. I would hope those of you who have been there know that. So here we have this racism. And you have to enter into the fact that this is not just simply a controversy over a doctrinal truth. It's not simply a question of whether we will be saved by works and faith or by works only or, 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 or by faith only. You don't enter into it that way. You have to read Clarence Jordan's version of, of Galatians. And then you begin to get a feel for it because Clarence Jordan writes the whole thing in terms of the conflict between whites and blacks in his native Georgia. He was a great scholar, and he says, I want people to be able to enter into this. And so it's a controversy where the whites eat with the blacks until northerners come. And then they don't. Well, maybe not northerners, maybe, who knows. But you get the feeling, don't you? that this is really a case of Jews always despising. Do you remember the accusation against Jesus? They say that, uh, that, that the most despicable thing about him is that he hangs out with what? With sinners and even what? He eats with them. Now, why was eating so important? Well, how could you be saved, literally saved? How could you be saved as a Jew if you were eating with people who were dirty? You remember uh, the intense lesson that Peter had to be given before he visited the home of the Gentile Cornelius. God kept saying to him, what I've called clean, don't you call dirty? Letting down all these different animals. So from the time when the veil of the temple was split in two, God made it clear to his church built on the Lord Jesus Christ in his work, God made it clear that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. All right? But it took a long time, and it's still going on today, that we still set up these pecking orders like chickens. And that we are very committed to these pecking orders because <coughs> um, all of us want to feel superior to somebody. And religion is a very good tool to do that. The disciples in the upper room, there arose a striving amongst them as to who, which of them was the greatest. Uh, in Antioch, there arose a striving amongst them as to which of them was the greatest. Um, and it goes on and on and on down to today. I'm convinced, and I make no apology for this, I speak for myself alone, I am convinced that uh, much, much, not all, not all, but much of the battle today in the Reformed Church, the church that looks back to the Reformation as its uh, time of birth, much of the battle over worship in that group of people is really a battle, a striving amongst ourselves as to which of us will be the greatest. And uh, that when we argue over worship, and particularly over whether or not syncopation belongs in the church. 
which really is, when it comes down to it, what much of the argument is. You know, whether the pipe organ is uh, particularly holy. Uh, Of course, they used to have the same argument about the pipe organ. And I know some of you that disagree with me think that I'm not setting up the case fairly, but let me tell you, those of us who have been in the elders' meeting and actually had these arguments will know that I am being fair in saying what my opinion is. And what the elders have decided for us as a church is we are not going to one-up other churches and those of you who come here by having formal, um, sophisticated, intricate music and making you think that that's necessary part of Christianity. The music school can do that when it comes to opera. And lots of people will pay good money to have it. But where it comes to the worship of Jesus Christ, there must not be a striving amongst ourselves as to which of us will be the greatest. Now, does this mean that I think women should dance in leotards as a part of worship? No. But not because it's beneath us but rather because it's a violation of the command of Scripture, thou shalt not commit adultery. In other words, I'm completely in favor of dancing in worship, just not by women in leotards. Shocked you on that one, didn't I? And what's my precedent? It's David. It's King David. King David danced. His wife was so disgusted that he made such a fool of himself in front of all the young women of Israel. And then the Bible says she didn't have any children from then on. Hmm. And do you think it was because of David or God? I think it was God. Maybe it was both of them. Maybe it put David in mind that he was not going to have her uh, and him be intimate from that point on. But it's clearly a rebuke. Now, I want you to enter into this and I want you to ask yourself the question, in what ways is there a striving amongst us as to which of us will be the greatest? And how do we use doctrine? How do we use membership in the church? How do we use table fellowship to send ever so sophisticated signals as to our superiority and other people's inferiority? How do we do that? Uh, Lately, now, listen, the point of studying Scripture is not so that I say, open wide now. Here comes the airplanes. You know, you've all fed kids that way. You know, you don't come to church to open wide now and I act like an airplane and put it in before you know what's happening. You come here to look at Scripture and to come under the Holy Spirit's guidance and to ask yourself the question, How does this apply to my life? Because it would be a pathetic book that God wrote that didn't apply to your life, that wasn't profitable in every way. All right? And so how does this apply to you? So I'm just taking pot shots. But about anywhere I shoot, I'm going to to get a bird. All right? Now, here's here's another pot shot. Try it on. If it doesn't fit you, that's fine. But here's another pot shot. How do we go about calling certain people Sabbath goyim and showing our superiority to them. Well, again, speaking for myself, I have become convinced that where a church is placed in a city is a way of very, very, in a very sophisticated way, signaling what your clientele is. (laughs) Now, think about that one. Which is the rich part of Bloomington? The West Side, right? That's a joke. (laughs) 
Where's the rich part of Bloomington? Let me ask another question. Where do educated people live? Okay. Is that a way of signaling who are the goyim and who you don't really want to be by? Where you place your church? Why is it that the PCA, my denomination, not this church, but my denomination, why is it that it always places its church first in where in Columbus, Ohio? Dublin. Okay. How about Indianapolis? I, know, I never know how to pronounce it, but it's spelled C-A-R-M-E-L. Carmel. Like the candy. Is that how you pronounce it? Carmel? Okay. I never heard of Carmel until I'd been to California and I got corrupted by them. <laughs> All right, what else? Well, listen, brothers and sisters, um, there's no place you can turn without immediately coming under conviction. You know, I wish that I was allowed by you to wear a robe every Sunday. Now, why? Well, you will think it's because then I would uh, have a higher status. But no, I'd like to wear a robe so I don't have to think every Sunday morning what I'm going to wear. Seriously. Well, is this the Pentecostal black turtleneck Sunday? Or is, <laughs> or is this the bow tie Miles Brander? No, it was the guy before Miles. Anyhow. Ehrlich, yes. Yes. And Simon, or what's the name of the senator from Illinois? He, Paul Simon. Yeah, he used to wear one. Yeah. Actually, it's Ken Hansen from my home church. And Chick Coop, our family doctor, C. Everett Coop. That's why I wear them, because I love both those men. <laughs> but see, you think it's because I'm wanting to be approved by the academic world. Now, not all of you, but some of you. Now, think about this. Clothes. Should those who serve as communion in this church wear suits and ties? Should those men who come up and read on the platform wear flip-flops? They all signal something. How about wearing Birkenstocks? With or without socks? Now, I'm trying to deal with trivial things, but I will tell you every single one of these issues has been the subject of discussion among those who lead this church. And I have made the case to Steve Moxie and friends that there is a certain standard. Now, I'm choosing Stephen because he always dresses appropriately. All right? But there's a certain standard for people leading worship that they need to come up to sometimes. All right? Because it's scandalous to people if you're not at that standard. But I think other people should dress down. And the elders actually decided a few years ago that they would not wear suits and ties when they serve communion because that would send the wrong message to the congregation. Not that they can't, but that they don't have to. Okay, so now think. Sabbath going, Jews and Gentiles, all right, how we dress, where our churches are, what kind of beat we have in our music, whether there are blacks and whites, whether there are any mixed couples where blacks are married to whites, all right, whether there are people who are currently involved in homosexual relationships sitting under the preaching of the gospel, whether they're welcome, okay, and I go on and on and on. In other words, how broad is your heart? And you see, the minute I ask that question, the question really is, is does Jesus own your heart? Or do those of the circumcision own your heart? 
In other words, is your life grand and glorious or is it pathetic? Is it large or is it small? Can it encompass the university, those of you that are in a union? Or do you despise the university? Can it encompass a union, those of you who are in management, or do you despise unions? Can it encompass management if you're a union, or do you only have love for your brothers? What a joke. (laughs) That's what they call each other. I used to be in a union. National Brotherhood Railway uh, Traffic Car Workers, Chicago Northwestern. All right, we'll pick it up next week. But remember this. This was the heart of the gospel, and it was so trivial. All right? This was publicly handled because it honored God to be publicly handled. This is our patrimony. This is our inheritance. This is our great uh, wealth that we get from our fathers in the faith. This account of Peter and Paul face-to-face like this. Okay? Let me read Luther on this. Because I want to end on a note of encouragement this morning. We're under conviction because we know how petty we are. But I want you to remember, who was petty? Peter! (laughs) Peter was petty! Alright, so it's encouraging. Luther says this, he says, it's a great comfort to us when we hear that even the saints that, that even the saints who have the Spirit of God do sin. This comfort they would take from us which say that the saints can't sin. Because, of course, <laughs> I didn't tell you this, um, but do you know when you go back and read commentaries on this, do you know that Jerome, do you know that Chrysostom, do you know that Erasmus all said that Paul and Peter did not really fight face to face, but it was a sham It was a drama put on for the sake of educating the church. Why? Because they couldn't imagine that the first pope would be wrong. So they had to come up with a biblical explanation that would show them resisting each other. They came up with some creative Greek grammar and said that this wasn't really a fight between Peter and Paul. Well, Luther says it's a great comfort to us when we hear that even the saints which had the Spirit of God sinned, Which comfort they, meaning what? Rome, would take from us who say that the saints cannot sin, that these apostles didn't sin. Samson, David, many other excellent men, full of the Holy Ghost, fill into great sins. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah were weary of their lives and desired death. Such errors and offenses of the saints, the Scripture sets forth to the comfort of those that are afflicted and oppressed with desperation. All right, it's a comfort to you. And they're set forth to the terror of the proud. No man has so grievously fallen at any time, but he may rise again. And on the other side, no man takes such solid footing, but that he may fall. If Peter fell, I may likewise fall. If he rose again, I might also rise again. Isn't that beautiful? So those of you who are proud, beware lest you fall. If you think you stand. And those of you who are tender of conscience, take encouragement. Peter is your champion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. We thank you for all of the historical details of Scripture that show us not supermen, 
But sinners like us who...